This is an ABC podcast. We have 30,000 jobs at risk across the sector. COVID-19 hit our sector very early and very hard. Education Minister Dan Tien is unveiling a coronavirus relief package today. The industry is expecting to take a revenue hit of up to $4.6 billion. Well, look, could I just start by saying that our paramount concern here is the health and wellbeing of our students, uh, both here and abroad. And uh, what we're looking to do... It's been six months of hell for the university sector. In Australia, the loss of fee-paying foreign students has seen a corresponding loss of academic positions as universities continue to shed jobs by the hundreds at a time. Similar problems are being experienced right across the globe. Those looking to the future argue that whatever reforms are put in place post-COVID-19, they need to go far beyond funding and student contact issues. There were already deficiencies in the system, they say, and what's vital now is to make this an opportunity to reassess the nature and purpose of academic research, the way it's undertaken, structured and acknowledged. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense and the first of a two-part look at future research options. We begin with Brian Nosek, the co-founder and executive director of the Centre for Open Science in the United States. The real challenge is that publication is the currency of advancement. I get a job, I advance in my job, I get promotions based on the number of publications and the prestige of the outlets that I publish in. And that on its own might not be a problem. But the problem is that certain kinds of results are more likely to get published than others. I'm more likely to get published if I get positive results, showing this treatment has an effect or that these variables are related, than getting a negative result, no relationship at all. I'm more likely to get published if I find a novel result, something new that hasn't been seen before, rather than trying to confirm or verify an, an existing finding or claim. And I'm more likely to get published if I have a neat and tidy story where all the evidence fits together than if there's exceptions and things that don't quite work. The reason that that is a challenge is that positive, novel, tidy results don't happen very often. It's hard to get that. We're studying things we don't understand. That's why we're studying them. And so the incentives are to produce very unlikely outcomes. And those outcomes take many, many years to obtain in real science. But the time lag, the timeline for reward is get the next publication, get the next publication. And does that lead to some researchers actually massaging their data to get a usable result, whether that's conscious or unconscious? Yeah, and I would say that it's primarily unconscious, that people are not aware that they're doing it, because I would think that I am just as vulnerable as anyone else to this. I have skin in the game. I need certain kinds of outcomes to advance my career. And so when I'm presented with choices of the many experiments that I run, which ones to report, of the many possible analyses of the data that I obtain, which ones are the right kinds of data, well, it's likely that the things that look better for publication, I will rationalize to myself, those must be the right ways to do it. Those must be the right findings. And so I could produce results that are not credible, even though all of my intentions are good, simply because of the context of decision-making and the biases in my own reasoning. You talk about, and you've written about, what you call a reproducibility crisis in research. Could I get you to explain what you mean by that? 
Yeah, the key challenge is that because of this gap in the reward system, where I'm rewarded for exciting and novel results, rather than pursuing high credibility and high reliability of the findings, that this may end up producing a published literature that is less credible than it appears. And so many investigations have been done across different fields where the research teams say, well, let's assess the credibility of the existing findings. For example, let's take a sample of studies that are published and try to replicate them, do the studies again and see if we get the same results. And we would expect that that would work at relatively high frequency if the published literature was credible. But many of these efforts actually show very low success rates of reproducing those original results. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the original results are wrong, like they just simply are incorrect. But it does mean that the literature, the credibility of that literature is more uncertain than we might think it is just by looking at it. So to what extent is the practice of peer review part of the problem here? Peer review is part of the problem and part of the solution and not enough for either. So part of the problem is that peer reviewers don't have enough information to actually evaluate the credibility of the claims. What peer reviewers receive when they're trying to evaluate a study for publication is the written report, but they rarely have access to the actual data, the actual analysis code, or the process that the researchers went through. The written report is what I, as the author, think is important to tell you as the reviewer, not what might actually be important. And so peer reviewers don't have enough information. Peer review is also part of the solution in that that independence of review, if they could have insight, the transparency of all of that process and outcomes, then peer reviewers could be a a self-corrective process to the biases that I have myself in producing those findings. Your approach looks at, and you are an advocate for what you call open science. Could I get you to explain to us the goal and the objective of open science? What do we mean by that term? With open science, we essentially mean we want science to be what everyone thinks science already is, which is when I am a researcher, I'm doing a study, I make a plan, I commit to that plan, I do the research, I report what I learned, and then I do other things once I have the data to see what else might be in there that wasn't part of my plan. And all of that is available to you as the reader to evaluate whether you think my ideas were correct, whether you have a different perspective, or you want to try to replicate and extend it to test new ideas or new possibilities for interpretation. That is just how we think of intuitively how science operates. It's an open system where everyone is working on problems, putting their ideas in and seeing which ideas survive. But the reality of the system isn't that yet. The reality of the system is that each of us has a bit of insight to what's happening about each other, but not enough insight. There isn't sufficient transparency for the system to be self-correcting in the ways that we hope for in science. And we don't incentivize rigor. We don't incentivize researchers to do the things that would reveal where we are wrong more quickly so that we can be more efficient in pursuing knowledge and solutions and cures. So transparency, by that you mean transparency of the process of research, getting that out and open right from the very beginning, not just focusing on the end result, the content, if you like. Yeah, that's exactly right. So if you knew that I ran 100 experiments and I only told you the one that looked like it had the right result, versus you knew that I only ran one experiment and that was the result, 
you would have very different levels of confidence in that one result. But if you don't know all of that process that I went through to try to obtain those findings, you can't possibly evaluate effectively the credibility of my findings. A major tool of your movement or or of the movement is what you call the Open Science Framework. Can I get you to explain how that operates? The Open Science Framework is a free tool for researchers to manage their collaborative projects. They create accounts, they start projects, they plan their work. When they have a plan, they register the study. So they make a commitment. Here is what the design is. Here is how I plan to analyze my data. That gets put into the OSF, Open Science Framework, registry so that others in the future could discover what those plans were and then what the final report in the end, how it compares to those plans. Then the researchers use the OSF to record all their data, put all their materials in. All of that can remain private while the researchers are doing their work so that they don't get scooped or any concerns that they have about revealing things too soon. But what the OSF does is it makes it really easy to make much or all of that work transparent eventually so that a future reader could then look back and say, well, let's see how it is you got to that finding, those claims. I want to look at your data and try analyzing it in a different way and see if it's robust to that. So providing these tools at the base to make it easier for researchers to be more transparent and be more rigorous is an essential ingredient to changing this research culture towards embracing greater rigor and transparency. A much more open form of research. That's the vision of Professor Brian Nosek from the Centre for Open Science. And you're listening to Future Tense. Two of the tools that you put forward for trying to make things more open and transparent are what you call pre-printing and pre-registration. How do they work exactly? So the idea of preprints is a very simple idea for open science, and that is we write reports and then we submit them for peer review. And then sometime in the future, if it gets published in a journal, sometimes months, sometimes years after the research is done. But it could be very useful to accelerate knowledge by making those reports available as soon as they're written, even prior to peer review so that researchers in the community, whether they receive it as a peer reviewer journal or not, can provide feedback. So when we preprint our papers, we're sharing them early, getting feedback from the community of people who care about that work, and that informs how we revise the paper for eventual publication. So that's an accelerant. Pre-registration happens at the beginning stage of the research process, where it is I'm writing down and committing to what my research design is, what my analysis plan and how I will report my findings. And what this solves is two key problems in credibility of research. One is that because positive results are more exciting and publishable than negative results, the challenge is that when researchers get negative results, they just put them aside, put them in the file drawer and ignore them. And so pre-registration can help with discovering those results that don't actually end up getting published. It can address publication bias. And then the second thing that pre-registration solves is all of that flexibility that I have when I'm analyzing my data and deciding what to report. So by making a commitment in advance of what is my primary outcome of this study that I'm interested in, how is it that I'm going to analyze the data to decide whether it confirmed or disconfirmed my hypothesis? Making those commitments without knowing what the results are removes the opportunity for my implicit biases to influence my judgment. 
and change the results to reduce their credibility. Are some researchers, though, going to be wary of that approach because they might fear that their credibility might be damaged early on in the piece if they're seen to make a mistake? Yes, there's lots of concerns about reputational stakes with this and being scooped as well, right, if someone else finds out about what my plans were. So there are concerns like those that can make researchers more reluctant to adopt these behaviors. And one of the challenges for the culture change movement is to help researchers embrace the idea that identifying error early is actually a way to enhance credibility, not to damage it. That our whole goal is to pursue areas where we are wrong, identify those problems so that we can fix them. And there's actually some research showing that researchers that identify and admit errors quickly actually have stronger reputations than those that deny or avoid even looking for errors that may occur in their work. Is your movement for open science, is it having resonance in the the scientific and research community? Yeah, there are many, many groups and advocates that are trying to advance openness in research across the variety of disciplines that are doing research. And that grassroots movement is having a substantial effect on actual behaviors. So, for example, the OSF, the software infrastructure that we host, was launched in 2012 and has had a growth rate that has been very rapid, an exponential growth rate, and now has already about 250,000 users, hosting 8 million files, thousands and thousands of registered studies. And that obviously is a lot, but it also is far from complete. And the OSF is only one of many infrastructures that are trying to help to improve transparency and rigor of research. But the real guts of this movement is the community spirit that is gathered among researchers who recognize that the system doesn't operate how we idealize it and are now taking steps to try to change that. It's quite a challenge, though, isn't it, to fight against a system that is so well entrenched, so well established? Oh, it is. Any culture change movement has huge barriers, inertia, people who benefit from the system as it exists right now, and uncertainty about whether the changes themselves will actually improve things. So all of those need to be addressed in a culture change movement. And one of the advantages that this present culture change movement in science has is that there is a meta-science community, a group of researchers that are actually studying the scientific process and whether these changes are actually effective or not. So we were just talking about pre-registration, for example. There are dozens of experiments and studies underway to evaluate whether pre-registration actually solves the problems that we think it solves. And that meta-science community actually doing science on science is helping to grease the wheel, as it were, to make it easier for the research community to embrace some of these changes because the evidence is very promising. Just finally, the Centre for Open Science is participating with DARPA, the US Defence Research Agency, to explore whether machines could determine the credibility of research claims. What's the reasoning for that particular project and how advanced is it? Yeah, this is called the SCORE program. And what we idealise as an output from this work is that we have sort of an early indicator that the machines could give us a heads up when we see research claims popping up in the literature for which ones are likely to be highly credible and which ones may need additional investigation to really determine whether they are credible or not. This is a real challenging problem for many people in the scientific ecosystem to evaluate whether I should trust this claim or this finding or this paper. 
And so if the machines can help us with some of this evaluation, anticipate where there may be replicability challenges or credibility challenges, then it would help to direct resources. Funders could say, that's an important finding, but because it's uncertain, we're going to fund studies directly about that. It would help individual researchers to identify the gaps in the claims and the work that they are doing. And it would help journals to prioritize what kinds of findings or issues that they want to pursue and support. What criteria could be used for assigning those kind of confidence scores? Well, what's interesting is that we have evidence right now that humans are able to anticipate the credibility of claims. So we and other researchers have operated some prediction markets where researchers bet on the replicability of findings based on what they could read in the paper itself, the original paper. And then replications were done, and those markets where people were betting money on whether they thought it would replicate or not were good predictors of actual replication success. So there's information in the paper that humans seem able to be able to extract. And now the question is, and there's actually promising preliminary evidence, is whether machines can extract that information as well or other information that humans may not recognize as easily. And the value of machines doing it in this context is that machines can work faster and harder and longer than humans can to read all of these papers. So it's a scalability challenge of if we can get machines to at least meet the quality of humans at predicting this, then we will be able to have a very broad set of credibility indicators to use for helping to make decisions about what to study next. There are many concerns expressed about algorithmic bias with systems at the moment. I mean, that would have to be factored in, wouldn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah. So there's strong potential for bias in the algorithms themselves. And so it is a long shot to think that any machine assessment of the credibility of claims would be sufficient information on its own to evaluate that claim and make big decisions about it. Instead, what it would be is one indicator of many that would help to direct attention and then resources to look further. And just finally, so how far off? Well, there are two papers that have shown evidence that machines can predict replicability of findings at about the level of humans. Now, that sounds great. There's two, and that is great. But whether that is itself replicable and scalable is still to be known. So I would guess that we will have sort of a strong evidence of this is promising for pursuit within the next two to three years assuming that that all looks very good, assuming that translates to actual implementation and practice might be within another two or three years after that. Professor Brian Nosek from the Centre for Open Science, thank you very much for joining us. Very good. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. The information and analytics company Elsevier is one of the giants of academic publishing. Adrian Mulligan is their research director for Customer Insights, and he's been conducting interviews and workshops with more than 2,000 researchers as well as futurists, publishers and technologists. He's been trying to gauge what academic research will look like in a decade or so from now. The result is a report called Research Futures, and it contains three possible scenarios of the future. The first, Brave Open World, sounds very much like the kind of environment that Brian Nosek just described. 
So let's move to the second and the third options. Scenario number two is called Tech Titans. So in this scenario, we see that state funding reduces and corporations and industry and philanthropic organizations to some extent as well step in to, to kind of fill the void that is created. In this world, you know, because these corporations are, are paying more into the system, so to speak, they are expecting to get more out of it and specifically kind of commercial advantage. So in this environment, we're seeing advanced technology being used to streamline the processes of research, specifically in terms of executing research that's being done. But not only that, it's also on the analysis side as well. So it's feasible that the hypotheses that researchers develop and, and test today are data-driven and developed by AI in the future. And when we did our survey, just over a quarter of researchers thought that this might be the case. So artificial intelligence has a, would have a big role to play in this environment. But it's the question mark, I suppose, as to how much of a role it will play. And did you come across concerns from researchers that research might actually become much more service-focused, that it might become much more attached to industry, say? Yeah, this is probably tied up with the kind of commercial targets that we part of the process of research in this environment. And I think the science as a service would be enabled by the kind of heavy investment of corporate organizations into into organization schemas such as taxonomies and ontologies and large-scale analytics. So that process in of itself is a really difficult thing to do. So if they solve that problem, that enables researchers to be able to perhaps sit in coffee shops with their very advanced, powerful computers with vast data sets, which they will be enabled to analyze and to study and produce results that would to a large extent, be the kind of purview of institutions today. So in that sense, it would be science as a service, but it would be supporting, I I would imagine, large pharmaceutical companies in in this environment. And probably the challenge would be more to institutes than researchers themselves, because they'd be the ones that would be driving that analysis and creating science as a service enabled by the technologies. And your third possible scenario for the future of research, you've labelled Eastern Ascendant. What would that mean for research? How would that play out? So in this scenario, we imagine the future is a little bit more fragmented, one in which nation states are competing with one another. There's a lack of alignment and countries compete for scientific advantage. So we're imagining this world that there's, there's less collaboration across international boundaries. And it's a world of increasing tension between particularly the US and China. And we see in this world that China will continue to invest heavily in research and development, which means that their educational institutes become the kind of premium institutes in the world. China becomes the powerhouse of research. They're controlling the research agenda and they're producing the best research. And well, the volume of research coming out of China is much higher. The quality of the research is really high. And we see in this world in the future that the best researchers across the world, instead of thinking about going to maybe MIT in, in the US or Oxford University in the UK, are now thinking about Beijing as, as destinations. So these are three distinct scenarios. Is it possible to say which one is most likely or would you expect that you'd have a, a kind of combination of all three to some degree? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's, it's really very difficult to say. I'm entirely honest, it's unlikely one scenario will play out in the way we described them. And as, as, as you suggest, rather elements of each of them will come true. And I think it's probably best not to think of them as, as predictions, but possible futures. Each one, I, I think, is plausible. I think for us and for 
researchers and institutions out there, it's, it's important to kind of plan your future to think about how you might be positioned in one of those three scenarios. Was there anything in the, the data that really surprised you, that really jumped out, that you weren't expecting? Well, some of the things that we touched upon was about how the next workforce should be educated, whether they should be prepared for industry. So should we be preparing the workers of the future or should we be just preparing students to be intellectually curious? And what we found was that in the West and the US, there was more of a stronger leaning towards preparing a, a workforce for industry as opposed to Asia, where actually they were more focused on in the future preparing intellectually curious researchers or workers for the future rather than actually prepared for, for industry. And from uh, all of the, the surveying you did, what was the biggest fear, I guess, that researchers had when they looked towards the future and what did they see as the greatest opportunity? Well, I think the answer to both those questions is the same thing. It's it's technology in some ways, uh, artificial intelligence. So it has the it has the ability to solve a lot of problems. And for many, it is the future and allows them to do research in new and novel ways. But at the same time, it represents a threat in lots of different ways, job security being one, and it playing a much greater role in the research process means perhaps there's going to be less job opportunities around. And then in the evaluation of research itself, it came true as, a, as an issue. So traditionally in research, articles that are published in scientific journals are peer-reviewed. It's conceivable in the future that peer review could be replaced by artificial intelligence at some organizations, and researchers were quite nervous about that prospect. So it's the same thing in both contexts for many researchers. Just a final question. What's the value of this kind of forward-looking scenario play? I think the, the kind of key advantage is just to be thinking about, well, in this particular future, this scenario describes, how would myself or my institution or my, the organization that I work for, how are we positioned to thrive in this future? What do we need to do to succeed? It's about your current environment and thinking of what are the strategies that you need to put in place to allow you to succeed. That's the kind of key takeaway, I would say. Adrian Mulligan, the Research Director for Customer Insights at the information and analytics company Elsevier. Now, next week, in part two of our look at the future of research, we'll talk with Assistant Professor Anne Toomey about what we mean by impacts and a need to rethink the way academics detail their findings. We acknowledge that the environmental research and environmental conservation and, and solutions are fundamentally about human decision making. We need to think, well, who would need to be involved if we want to change farming practices? Well, we need to work with farmers and we need to understand the way that farmers see things from their perspective. So it's very hard. And I think one of the biggest challenges is that researchers in the environmental fields are often not as well versed in social sciences, especially in the areas like, you know, policymaking, psychology, and behavioral economics. We might learn about like cultural differences, but these are new areas of exploration for a lot of environmental researchers. And we'll also find out about a new American initiative that could have significant global implications. It's called the National Research Cloud. If you think about the brain drain in AI and advanced AI, what has happened is in order to have access to the compute power that you need, in order to have access to large data sets, industry has both of those, plus industry pays more. So those are the three factors that are contributing to the brain drain. 
this will address two of those factors. It won't address the salaries, but there are plenty of researchers that are really not driven so much by salary. So access to these large data sets will open up new science across the board. And this will allow researchers in the various different fields to ask questions that could not be answered prior to the AI revolution. Stanford University's John Echimendi, among our guests next week on Future Tense. Remember, go to our website if you want to listen to the show again or you want further details on our guests and their work. Thanks to my colleague and co-producer, Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. Hello, Lisa Leong here. If you're at a loose end now that this Future Tense episode is finished, have a listen to our show, This Working Life. It's a podcast about what works and could work better in the world of work. It's brought to you by ABC Radio National, the same people responsible for your weekly Future Tense hit. You can find us wherever you get your podcast from. Anthony says this working life is intelligent, playful and always informative. Shucks. Thanks, Anthony. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.